Hello and welcome to the Anthems Podcast. I'm Patrick, and today I'm going to try and tell you the story of a song that helps to tell the story of a nation. If you were entertained to come back again, it turns out I was right about how podcasting works. Anyway, this is episode two, Italy. Today's anthem is Il Canto degli Italiani, or The Song of the Italians. It was chosen because I was frustrated while trying to find a coherent thread in the information tapestry of another anthem, and I was also thinking about my great-grandfather, Al, and how he never quite got the hang of English. So, Italy it is. It's probably a stereotype, but the passionate Italian tracks with my family because everybody on that side is a loud, gesticulating, smiling person. Similar nature is apparent in most of the people involved in the story. They are, after all, members of one of the many nascent revolutionary groups in the Italian peninsula. This one is going to take us through the unification of that peninsula, the naming of a different anthem, through the entire 21st century and right on up to just a couple of years ago. But as you know, or you will from now on, the anthem gets played pretty early on in this show. Because it is about the song, and you should hear the thing that I'm going to talk about. So have a listen, and then we'll have a little word about it before proceeding with the narrative. Uh, Just be prepared, because some of these are long, and this is one of them.
initial impression of the song was that it felt like it was part of an opera you know like that part where somebody's standing there sing speaking about a thing maybe it's because it's italian and i have an existing association between opera and italian it's also like it's fast so i see how it could be a marching band song or something like i would normally associate with an anthem you know, I'll talk about the whole song later on. I'm not always going to read part of it and, and read at the outset of the show, but I am this time because the uh, the chorus really sets the stage for the, the feeling of the story. It reads, Let us join you in a cohort. We are ready for death. We are ready for death. Italy has called. Yes. Death appears again and again in many of these songs. And death is a part of the birth of national anthems in many cases. Il Canto degli Italiani is one of those cases. Some of that death is the triumphant and patriotic kind, but most of it is not triumphant or patriotic, and it just is death. The timing of the song's birth makes it seem less odd that it's steeped in thoughts of patriotic death. The precise date is a matter of debate amongst historians, with the contestants being the 10th or the 8th of September of 1847. Personally, I prefer the 8th as the date because it was during that year that the first Genoese movements for reform began and the establishment of the Civic Guard started. And it was one of the multitude of sparks that lit Europe on fire with revolution in 1848. So it's kind of fitting that that would be the day for the national anthem to have been born. Uh, before we get into it, one more thing. I want to zoom out a bit. Because since Europe was on the eve of exploding into revolution, we should discuss where Italy was, or rather where the collection of things that was modern-day Italy was at the time. Italy is kind of an interesting place to think about in a geographical sense because it is a naturally defined territory. The country is a peninsula, has several islands like uh, Sicily and I have forgotten the other one, I apologize. It's on the northern coastline of the Mediterranean Sea and the bit that attaches to Europe proper is walled off by the Alps. When a peninsula comes back to land, it is apparently called delimited, which is sort of a cool word. Anyway, if you're unsure of where Italy is, just look at a globe and find the thing that looks like a boot, kicking Sicily into the Mediterranean Sea. At 116,310 square miles, Italy comes in as the 10th largest country in Europe, and the 60 million or so people that live there make it the third most populous in the EU and the sixth most populous in Europe. 
The country is bordered by France, Switzerland, Austria, and Slovenia on the coast. And technically, it also borders San Marino and Vatican City, but they are both enclaved microstates, the cooler of the two new terms I heard reading about this. It means that they're completely bordered around by only one country. Now, from the geographical footprint standpoint, the region has always been fairly well-defined. Back in 1847-ish, when this story starts, the land was parsed out in a completely different way. The map of the Italian peninsula in 1847 looked essentially just like it did after the Congress of Vienna in 1915. That was the process of figuring Europe out again after Napoleon ran roughshod over the continent. I told you we were going to see Napoleon again. That is, it was currently a collection of duchies, city-states, republics, and kingdoms. The largest of them were places like the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, the Kingdom of Tuscany, the Papal States, the Kingdom of Tuscany, I repeated that, and Sardinia also. This collection of ununified entities suited the larger powers in Europe just fine particularly the Habsburgs of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They had, as part of that empire, acquired the kingdom of Lombardy, Venetia. So they had an interest in everyone else on the peninsula staying tiny and push-aroundable. Italy was one of the many things that the Habsburg family lost control of in the next couple of years. And Il Canto degli Italiani was right in the middle of it. In the very month that the anthem was being written, there were three revolts that foreshadowed the deluge of independent fervor that swept across the peninsula in 1848 and came to be known as the Insurrection of 1847 in the Two Sicilies. I will not discuss the specific details of that event, as none of the principal characters in the anthem story were present for it. However, the young man that wrote the patriotic hymn that became the national anthem of Italy was very much involved in Italian revolutionary action in the pursuit of an independent state. That isn't to say that the composer had no part in the events of the next several years. Uh, they were both Genoese. Uh, the poet was born in 1827 and the composer in 1818 and both of them were in Genoa in 1847 when organization began. They were both referred to in more than one source as convinced liberals and were part of a cadre of similar people that was large enough to achieve their goal within the lifetimes of some of the participants. The respective paths of all participants and where they led were remarkably different, and we're really only interested in the paths of two of the guys because they're the only two that really matter for the narrative around Eno di Mameli, or Mameli's Hymn, another pseudonym for the anthem. And our story begins with a guy called Mameli, and the chronologically shorter of the two paths. The poet Mameli was born into a noble family. His father was an admiral in command of the fleet centered at Genoa, where he was born. He was initially schooled at home, but he was also a sick kid. And at the time in Genoa, if you were a sick kid, it meant that you might die of cholera. So Gifredo was sent away to complete his literary education. In March of 1847, he was in the process of doing exactly that with some success. But by then, the literary club that he was meeting, called the Entelima, had started to become more of a political club 
and by September of 1847, on either the 8th or the 10th, depending on which historian we believe, he had written Il Canto degli Italiani, and in addition to that, he dropped out of university and devoted himself full-time to the effort to unify the Italian peninsula. Feet first kind of guy. And it sounds like something I would have done when I was 19 or 20, because I was also an idealistic fool. <laughs> when the Italian Revolution, which is properly called the Risorgimento, which Google translates as resurrection, breaks out, Gifredo went to Lombardy as a volunteer, and there he met Giuseppe Manzini, a man responsible for much democratic European thinking and a spearhead of the unification movement in Italy. Momelli was part of the march on Rome when Pius was out of the country and was there for the declaration of the new Roman Republic. Granted, it was a really short-lived republic and it only lasted a couple of months, but the Constitution did allow for freedom of religion and it was the first one in the West to forbid capital punishment as a provision. So, pretty cool. Shortly after that, Gifredo was in Rome fighting with the French because they were trying to reclaim control of the Papal States for really complicated reasons that I chose not to read about. And it was there, during an assault on a French position, that Mameli was shot in the leg on June 3rd of 1839. The sources are all extremely insistent that it was a minor wound and he developed gangrene due to substandard medical care and poor treatment from the people taking care of him. Whether that's simple hero worship or in fact an accurate account, I cannot say. Regardless, by the time the decision was made to amputate the leg, it was too late for the brewer poet Gifredo Mameli. He died on July 6th and he never lived to see the completion of the Risorgimento that he helped to get going. Now, we are going to time jump back to 1818. We need to catch the composer up in the timeline. Michael Navarro was born in Genoa on December 23rd of 1818. He was the oldest of five children. By 1829, he was enrolled at a conservatory studying singing and composition and seemed to develop something of a career. He was in several operas and smaller shows, and by 1841 had secured a place as the second tenor at the Teatro Reggio. Fun fact, the opera house at the Teatro Reggio is still there, and they do like 12 shows a year at it. And in fact, it has been there since 1740. It is a very cool old building, and I encourage you to look it up. Again, it is the Teatro Reggio. Anyway, during this time in Turin, Navarro's standing offer for composing music for patriotic hymns and Mameli's desire for original music coincided. The poet knew that this was a particularly special patriotic hymn and rejected the idea of setting it to existing music. He knew of Navarro and had the manuscript sent to him. Michael was said to be struck by the lyrics. Anton Borelli gives an account of how the composer describes seeing the hymn for the first time. I placed myself at the harpsichord with Gifredo's verses on the lectern. I strummed. I murdered the poor instrument with convulsive fingers, always with my eyes on the hymn, putting down melodic phrases, one on top of the other, but far from the thousand miles to the idea that they could fit those words. I got up displeased with me. I stayed a little longer at the Valerio house, but always with those verses in my mind's eye. I saw there was no remedy. I took leave and hurried home. There, without even taking off my hat, I threw myself at the piano. 
The motif strummed in the Valerio house came back to me, and I wrote it on a sheet of paper, the first that came to my hands. In my agitation, I turned the lamp over the harpsichord, and consequently also onto the poor sheet. It was the original of the hymn, Brothers of Italy. See, I told you passionate described the origin of the anthem. Despite his clearly strong feelings for the Risorgimento effort, what several sources again have called a convinced liberalism and his direct involvement in writing the national anthem, Michael remained a player on the sidelines. He never received, or in fact sought to receive, any personal benefit at all from his involvement in revolutionary affairs. Navarro went on to work as a impresario to teach music, and he founded a school. He probably lived the kind of generally quiet, respectable life that I would be happy with right up until the end when, in part on his refusal to capitalize on the success of the revolution, he succumbed to poverty and the poor health that often accompanies it. He died in 1885 and is buried not far from Mazzini in a stone crypt that his students commissioned. Once more, we will jump back in time and we're going to go right back to the release of the anthem. And that happened on the 5th of December in 1847. The hymn was ready to make its debut as one of the several poems to celebrate the return of Charles Albert, who was the king of Sardinia. He was out in Genoa for something. A different song was officially sung there, but a report by journalist Giuseppe Mazzari shows that Mameli's poem had made a very strong impression, and it was already being called a national anthem by some people. Quote, But the poem for the splendor of the images, for the truly original novelty of the concept, for the vigor of the feeling, and for the natural and spontaneous harmony of the rhythm, surpasses all others in comparison, and will survive the ravages of time in the oblivion of the centuries. It is the national anthem dictated by the young Genoese Mameli, which will be made public in these days. It is a true national anthem, the Italian anthem. It will be our piena. Mameli's verse found a worthy interpreter in the distinguished Genoese maestro Navarro, who knew how to dress them in a melodious and magical musical guise. A few evenings ago, we listened to the singing of the anthem by Mameli with the music of Navarro and were proudly moved. The AI translates it a little bit clumsily, but again, we see the strength of feeling that people have for this song in Italy at the time. The anthem did have its public debut soon after. There was a ceremony on the 10th that commemorated a Genoese revolt against the Austrian occupiers. Here, the anthem was presented in front of something like 30,000 people, many of whom were veterans of the event that was being celebrated. Side note, that got me thinking that how big is a crowd of 30,000 people? Uh, it turns out that it is almost exactly the amount of people that fit in Waldo Stadium in Kansas. Waldo Stadium in Kansas is a decent-sized college football stadium. It's a pretty big crowd. All of them, or at least much of them, were probably singing too because they all had copies of Mameli's hymn. The immediate reaction to Il Canto degli Italiani was fairly broad acclaim amongst many of the Italian patriots. Almost exactly the opposite reaction was fairly immediate with the Savoyard authorities and especially with the Austrians. The former banned the song until March of 1842, and the latter had singing it as a political crime until after World War I. 
I found it interesting that the strongest voice outside of the authorities that resisted the song was Mazzini himself. He thought that the song was not a martial enough tune, so he commissioned another called Siwana La Tromba, or The Sound of the Trumpet, should you want to look the thing up. The new song was not picked either, despite being far more explicit in invoking combat with the invaders. Oh, Momelli's hymn won out as the anthem of choice. Uh, we will fast forward through much of the 1850s and the nitty-gritty details about the web of history that is the Risorgimento, uh, but we should note that the catchiness of the canto and the fact that a law prohibiting gatherings of more than 10 people had recently been appealed, those two factors were able to team up and make it so that the anthem was sung at nearly every event that they had. The fifth verse was left off for a while because it was anti-Austrian, but that ban ended with the beginning of the First War of Independence. We're talking like six or seven months, so it was a pretty short ban. Then, the anthem continued to be a favorite among armed groups during the fight for unification from 1848 through 1861. That is right up until the actual reunification happened. Because in a tale that you will have to read about in one of the books out there, the end result of the Risorgimento is the proclamation of the Kingdom of Italy, where Vittorio Emmanuel II assumed the title of king for himself and his successors. It is far less of a jarring transition from revolution to constitutional monarchy if the entire story is followed. For our purposes, suffice to say that a song about the republican and Jacobin nature of Italian independent thought was not the song that the king let become the national anthem. He picked the royal march. That became the anthem, and except for a brief period after Rome was liberated in 1944 by the Allies, it stayed as the anthem until the final fall of the Kingdom of Savoy in 1946. As with other anthems that pop up along the way when I'm telling my story, maybe this one will get a story at another time. What happened to Il Canto degli Italiani during the Kingdom of Italy and then further on through Mussolini's fascism? It actually remained really popular at certain times, and that carried it through. Whenever there was something that the Italians were patriotic about, Brothers of Italy seemed to be sung during the Second War of Independence, the Italo-Turkish War, and in the trenches of World War II. The fascist period that began after the March on Rome in 1922, where a group of armed peoples essentially put a gun to the king's head and said, hey, it would be great if you let our guy Benito form a government. And the king said that he thought that would be an absolutely cracker's idea. So he abdicated, put his son Umberto in power. Umberto came into power in May, and then in the middle of June, he transferred all executive power and authority to the prime minister, Benito Mussolini, and retreated into exile. As you may imagine, there were some restrictions on the music you were allowed to play or listen to during fascism. Uh, the Mameli hymn, though, did not disappear completely. Due to its cultural saturation, it was actually occasionally granted special dispensation and allowed to be played at events. Through World War II, the hymn was particularly popular among the many anti-fascist groups that arose on the peninsula, with some historians even floating the idea that this was the deciding factor in the anthem being adopted at the end of the war. 
after the debate opened up about what to use as an anthem that Il Canto degli Italiani won the day, and on the 12th of October 1946, it was officially decreed as the provisional national anthem of the Italian Republic. Now, we time jump forward through 60-something years of debate, criticism, failed attempts to replace, many efforts to elevate, and the failed forcing through of several bills. Honestly, it's not exciting, and it does not do much to move the story along, so we're going to skip over it like a rock on a lake, and I will spare you the bureaucratic drudgery that is the Italian parliament. June 2016, another opaque process occurs in the Italian parliament, and a bill that attempts to name Il Canto degli Italiani is put forth. This one makes it through. And on December 4th of 2017, a law was promulgated that simply read, quote, The Republic recognizes the text of the Canto degli Italiani by Gefrado Mameli and the original musical score by Michael Navarro as its national anthem. With that, we have Il Canto degli Italiani as the national anthem of Italy. It's very fitting that the story of an anthem is a memorable, if small, part of the union of a country that it is written for. The hymn only made it through this long stretch of time to be made official because of the shared passion of the Italian people for the song. They sang it whenever they were fighting or striving for unity, independence, and freedom, regardless of what their government looked like. It survived at least four serious challenges to its choice as the anthem. And, you know, what kind of a song can inspire such fervor in people? It's got to be a national anthem. Or perhaps something religious. Let's have a look at this one. In a refreshing change from the trend of things that I've been reading about lately, there was a great deal of analysis about this song, uh, musically and poetically speaking. So I had a lot more to work with. This hymn is written as six double quatrains of Sonari, each of which is followed by a single quatrain of Sonari in ritornello. That means that each eight-line stanza is constructed with a pair of four-line verses that have a particular rhyming pattern. Further, the Sonari means that each of these rhyming patterns needs to be six syllables. The chorus is a single quatrain of six-syllable lines that rhyme and ritornello means refrain, which is essentially the chorus. The specifics of poetic meter don't seem to be terribly important in this one. It has kind of just an A-B-A-B rhyming scheme. Uh, but if anybody has any thoughts or resources on some kind of poetry stuff that applies to this, as always, let me know. I'm open to being corrected. On to the verse. The first reads as follows. Brothers of Italy... Italy has awoken, bound Scipio's helmet upon her head. Where is victory? Let her bow down, because as a slave of Rome, God created her. This first line is in a lot of risorgimento poetry. Proponents of the movement wanted the Italian people to be seen as one. The next two lines refer to the great Roman general Scipio Africanus that defeated Hannibal's army at Carthage and ended 17 years of bloodshed in Rome's African provinces. The rest of the verse assures the people that the goddess of victory will, in the more literal translation, tender her hair to Rome to be cut. 
and as being a student of the classics and Roman history in particular was en vogue at the time, an aristocrat like Mameli would certainly know that a short-haired Roman girl was a slave. The refrain we met at the beginning of the show, but here it is again. Let us join in a cohort. We are ready for death. We are ready for death. Italy has called. Yes. Pretty clear stuff. Although I will note that cohort is not just, hey, let's make a club. It is a specific Roman unit equal to one-tenth of a legion. Here, we are again leaning on the assumption that Mameli would have known about ancient Rome. So the refrain is a call from the country to band together into a unit to fight and die for the cause. In the original writing, there were only three lines. There is no repeated line and the yes exclamation at the end was added in before final printing. It seems that the repeated line was added in for poetic circularity, you know, to make it into a quatrain, and maybe the yelly yes is in there for musical purposes, but that's not real clear to me. The second first says, We were for centuries downtrodden, derided, because we are not one people, because we are divided. Let one flag, one hope, gather us all. The hour has struck for us to unite. Here is another, I think, pretty straightforward but still stirring verse. I'm actually reminded a bit of Ben Franklin when reading it. Uh, reminds me of his Join or Die cartoon that was to inspire the colonies to join together. Mameli is highlighting essentially the same thing and saying that Italy's problems arise from not sharing the hope for a united and strong Italian nation. The third verse, Let us unite, let us love one another. Union and love, reveal to the peoples the ways of the Lord. Let us swear to set free the land of our birth, united by God, who can overcome us. More clear and evocative lyricism from our poet. It is a very Christian-heavy verse, because it was written by a guy that was probably pretty religious. He was born in Italy in 1847. Dude was almost certainly Catholic. So there's like a lot of well, of course, to seeing God referred to so fervently in this anthem. But Shafrato was able to stay on topic and calls for unity, because God will only reveal his ways and protect Italy's triumph if Italy is one country. It's clever, and it would have been quite effective for a 19th century Catholic. The fourth verse, from the Alps to Sicily, Legnano is everywhere. Every man hath the heart and hand of Ferruccio. The children of Italy, they are all called Belilia. Every trumpet blast soundeth the vespers. This verse is a complicated series of historical references that took me forever to read through a bunch of sometimes very rough AI translations to be able to summarize the struggles against the invading forces that were faced by the descendants of Rome. So here we go. The first two lines are referring to an 1176 battle wherein an alliance of northern peninsular kingdoms and city-states faced off and beat back a German emperor and ended his attempts to gain territory there, and saying that these victories will happen everywhere. The next two lines refer to Francisco Ferrucci, a guy with a pretty wild story for himself. He was sort of a military commander, but also a castle administrator and kind of a knight and a frontline fighter and uh, some other kind of a governor, but he was always in the service of Florence. He was defeated in battle by Charles V of the Habsburgs and shamefully executed while wounded and chained in the year 1530. 
The next two lines are about a young man called Bolilia, who started in a 1746 rebellion in Genoa against, big surprise, the Habsburgs. He began the liberation of his city by hitting a cop with a rock. The last two lines refer to the ringing of the bells in 1282 in Palermo that called the people to revolt. This began the War of the Vespers that resulted in the liberation of Sicily from the Angevins. Ooh, Mameli evidently read his history in school, and he uses it to again stay laser-focused on his point. All of the references are to the defense of Italy that resulted in the invaders being triumphantly repelled. On to verse 5. The mercenary swords are feeble reeds. Already the eagle of Austria has lost its plumes. The blood of Italy, the Polish blood, it drank along with the Cossack, but it burned its heart. This is the verse that was banned when the Austrians were in power and not being revolted against. It seemed weird to me at first to be singing about Russia and Poland in a patriotic Italian song, but the Polish were also being repressed by the Austrians in a team-up with the Russians. What Mameli is saying here is that the mercenary soldiers are weaker than patriots and the Habsburg Empire was being undermined by the resistance of the Italians and the Polish at the same time. Again, he is right on message. We can win and fight against the Austrians because we are not alone. The sixth and final verse, Long live Italy. She has awoken from slumber, bound Scipio's helmet upon her head. Where is victory? Let her bow down, because as a slave of Rome, God created her. My understanding is that this verse is generally not performed. It is another odd one, because it's not in the very first draft of the poem. Then it appears in the second, then again in Navarro's musical piece, but not in the first official printing of the anthem. It is a slight rewording of the first two lines of the stanza, followed by the same six preceding lines. In this verse, though, their first line anticipates a successful unity for Italy, making things poetically circular. All told, Mameli is very, very clearly focused on making his point. In my reading, I've seen his writing referred to as heavily rhetorical and difficult to interpret by virtue of historical references that are far from apparent. They are both fair criticisms, but the intended audience for this song at the time would have gotten almost all of the references, and they clearly love the thing. Navarro's music played no small part in the popularity and power of the song. My initial first impression of Mameli's hymn feeling operatic was actually not a terrible guess, because the music is written as something called a cabaletta. It is, in fact, part two of a two-part section favored for arias in mid-17th century Italian opera literally what Navarro did for a living at the time, so he's just kind of doing his job for the revolution. Melodically speaking, it is not a terribly complex 4-4 march that's mostly in B-flat major. Navarro took Mameli's six-part syncopation and set it to a six-part musical phrase. In the 12-bar introduction to the piece, the first eight bars oscillate between B-flat major and G minor, and then they settle into B-flat major for the rest of the song. Michael made a couple of unusual musical choices because I have no idea. Uh, again, my amateurism is showing here. If you know what they're talking about when they say anacrusic rhythm, please send me an email and explain it. All told, 
it's not a really bad anthem. It's steeped in meaning. It's extremely patriotic. It's written by people involved in the early action that resulted in the state that it was chosen to represent. And it's actually not a bad song, if a little bit long in its full version. So, we are going to wrap this up. The writing, recording, and production for the show are done by me, and I also wrote slash played the intro slash outro music. The music was used with my permission. Unless otherwise noted, the anthems I play are public domain stuff. My sources and other tasty bits I find are going to be in the show notes. The most direct way to get to those show notes is at anthemspodcast.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram as the Anthems Podcast. Uh, Also, I think I'm on WhatsApp, but I don't know if I did that right. And I also don't know if I'll have the energy to get on the rest of the socials. You can email me corrections, comments, suggestions, ideas, instructions on how to do awesome things, concerns, and even ask me questions at anthemspod at gmail.com. For better or for worse, I have made it possible to leave me a voicemail at plus one two zero three seven five nine eight three seven five. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the show.